Thank you. Matches yours. <laughs> it's brighter though. You did it again. Okay, if you have last week's handout, if you look at page 56, we left off uh, there, and uh, I'll pick up here where we left that, that lesson. We were talking about a person's character in the light of Revelation in chapter 7, verses 15 to 29. We are talking about the idea of wisdom rather than perfection, and we talked about the concept of that there's no amount of righteous living can prevent uh, sin that so easily assails every one of us. And uh, we talked about how can an individual experience life beyond the sun. And that was where we left off. In fact, I think we left off with that question. How can we experience life beyond the sun? Ecclesiastes deals with life under the sun. But what about beyond the sun? How can we experience that? Anyone? Trust in the Lord. Uh, what was it, Marvin? We have to have faith in Christ. We have to have faith in Christ. Now, what, what do you think about Solomon? Uh, could Solomon understand that at this point? Uh, do we see anything here that lends any hope that uh, Solomon would understand what it took to actually see and experience life beyond the sun? Or do we see nothing but hopelessness here? What do you think so far, having gone through almost seven chapters of Ecclesiastes? Do you see anything in the book thus far that would say that perhaps he would understand? Anyone? I think verse 18 gives us an insight to Solomon's at least developing the awareness of trust in God preempts all of the rest of us. Okay, and he uses a term there, doesn't he? Fears God. Uh, in fact, this is not the first time we've read about fearing God, is it? And where else in the book have we read about a concept that's beyond the realm under the sun? Chapter 3, verse 11. God has planted what? Eternity. He set eternity in the hearts of mankind that they might consider these things. So we begin to see a glimmer. And one of the things we need to ask, and we'll go further into that today, is how much would Solomon understand? How much would he have known about how to obtain life beyond the sun? Keep in mind here that it's very clear from the book that he's very much emphasizing and focusing on life under the sun. But sometimes, you know, if we talk about something very exclusively and we focus on it and we emphasize it, uh, it's because we know there's a contrast, because we know there's an alternative, because we know there's something different. And every now and then we get a tiny little clue in the book of Ecclesiastes. And as we watch it develop, I think we're going to find some amazing things happen in this book. Yes, Butch? I was just thinking just by virtue of terror. Okay. All right. All right. And what about David's Psalms? I mean, we look at like Psalm 16 and uh, we look at some of the Psalms of David and see his awareness of a future life. We see David uh, has an awareness of what it's like to be with God. He talks about when I awaken and I see him in his glory. Uh, these type of things were obviously in the background of Solomon 
at least in part. And so we would have some confidence that he knew something, but whether or not he related to it is another thing. Tom? Well, at the beginning of his reign, he asked the Lord to with him. All right. So he knew there was there. All right. He was perfectly aware of the existence of God, that God provides wisdom, God takes care. Don? God revealed himself to him. All right. Okay, Solomon, even now, looking back on that life where he departed from serving God, now in the spiritual journey that he's describing here in the book of Ecclesiastes, does remember. He remembers what relationship he did have with God, and he is seemingly aware of what relationship he could redevelop with God. All right, well, let's go further then as we look at this. And uh, we talk about here the idea that we're not perfect. And that the wisdom that God gives is a wisdom that is talking about here the wisdom that would deliver a person, would provide them with life beyond this world, beyond being under the sun. And as we think about that, we have to look and examine ourselves. And one of the things that Solomon points out is the evidence that we lack wisdom, the evidence that we are sinners, has to do with our mouth, our tongue. How we all fail in act or in speech. And in verses 20 to 22 of chapter 7, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. What does that sound like to you? Anything in the New Testament? Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in fact, it could very well be that Paul was citing this verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. And it's one of those cases that uh, we, we see it and we realize that Solomon realizes this. And, and let's think about that a minute. You know, before we can really come to Christ by faith or come to God for salvation, what do we first need to realize? That we're sinners, right? It's only sinners that need a forgiving God, right? It's only sinners that need a redeemer. And so he's working on this right now. Chapter 7 and chapter 8 both, this is one of the focal points that Solomon is working on, that we are sinners. And he systematically removes every possible excuse we could offer. And you wonder, where is he going with this? Well, we'll have to watch that and see. You know, if we're aware of our own sinfulness, we'll also be more forgiving of others. Because remember that uh, Solomon here in chapter 7 had been uh, talking here about the way we live. And in verse 21, he says, do not take seriously all words which are spoken so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. And what he's saying is, look, why do you forgive others for what they say against you? Because you know that you also have spoken against others sometime. Right? I, I'm not asking for, you know, mass <laughs> confession right now. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> right, you can answer inside your head, Linda. That's fine. All right? It, this is Solomon's point. He says, why should you forgive others? Why should you overlook what they say about you? 
Well, just remember what you have said about others at times. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't alone. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll get back and have a uh, reconciling session here. So Solomon is, is quietly working at every single detail. You've got to be wondering, don't you, at this point, okay, Solomon, how do you fit into all of this? How do you fit in? What have you said? How have you reacted? How have uh, you behaved in this area of speech? In verse 26, for you have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Notice, very specific. Now, in verses 23 to 29, as we close out chapter 7, we get into a search for an explanation. He says, I tested all this with wisdom, and I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation. An explanation. As we look at this, Solomon's is saying, you know, we have an inability to solve some of life's tough questions. Uh, the inequities of life. Why do some seem to be so blessed and others seem to not have that blessing? Uh, why do some seem to live long lives and others seem to live short lives? Why all of this, the inequities of life and the inevitability of death? These are just part of the more difficult questions that we wrestle with every day. These are the things that we have to resolve for ourselves, right? Because life is not fair. I can remember uh, having to apologize to one of our sons because I disciplined him uh, unfairly because he was not the one at fault it was his little brother but i just assumed that you know sure. nate had done it is. i mean you know after all i saw him and i said he's just like his dad and i know how i am and that's you know and the poor kid gets blamed you know and then i find out it was his little brother who we always thought was so innocent yeah. you know my, then you have to go and apologize. But how do you then teach a lesson from that besides? Well, what I told him was, well, Nathan, I'm very sorry, and I was wrong, and we will punish your brother appropriately. Uh, and what have you learned from this situation other than your dad makes lots of mistakes and doesn't know everything? And we talked about it, and what, one of the lessons I brought out was, you know, this helps train you for life. When parents make mistakes, it helps train you for life because life isn't always fair. And other people are going to make mistakes too that are going to cause you to suffer. You just have to learn. Now that may sound like a cop-out, and he felt like it was a cop-out at that point. I'm certain. But I'm certain nowadays he would agree <laughs> that that's the way it is. But, you know, we face those things. We have to answer. John? I said, well, that was for the time that I didn't catch you. That's a real good cover. <laughs> but we face these things. I mean, just think what we're going through right now in our church. We have everything from uh, Shirley Kemper facing inoperable, incurable cancer. We know it's going to take her life. How long she has, we have no idea. Uh, she looks perfectly healthy. She has a birthday this month. Uh, and everything looks fine, but they found this and there's nothing they can do about it. It just suddenly occurred. And uh, then we have uh, uh, Karen Richardson. And here's a lady in her 40s that uh, uh, is not long with us, facing uh, inoperable cancer herself. A very different situation. 
Uh, Shirley's husband's already home with the Lord. Uh, her children are grown, married. She's going to have her first great-grandchild uh, before the end of November. That'll be quite a joy for her. And uh, yet you have Karen, on the other hand, uh, children still in high school and college. And then uh, we have little Susanna in the hospital with a difficult situation. We hope that the doctors get that all resolved and take care of, but it's obvious that it was a life-threatening circumstance. So at the very beginning of life to the very ending of our lives, we face these difficulties and these problems. And it affects each person differently, and each family faces these questions about the questions of how fair is this, the inequities of it, the difficulties of it. And the, we're faced constantly with the inevitability of death. And as we see those things, we've got to be more aware of ourselves, of how are we preparing ourselves for that time. Solomon is beginning to realize, and wrestling with all these difficult questions, that his wisdom has limits. Now, would you have thought that when we read about him in 1 Kings chapter 3, that there were limits to his wisdom? <laughs> Boy, this, this guy has found out a, a very difficult and hard way. Where did his foolishness first show up? His relationship to women. Right? That was his first biggie. And then he got involved in idolatry. I mean, here's the world's wisest man going downhill as fast as a freight train. And his life is out of control. And things are getting really messy. He has learned a very hard way that he is not as wise as perhaps he thought he was. And that his wisdom does not extend to some of the more important things in life. Bill, you had something? times we faced with those insoluble situations but the point of this is God alone is the only one who's wise right God alone knows everything that's the point so one of the things that Solomon is doing by going through this whole procedure of looking at our sinfulness is to cause us to realize that we cannot save ourselves by human wisdom that it's only the wisdom of God that can resolve these issues and only the wisdom of God that can deliver and ultimate wisdom does not reside in the land of the living. Notice here he says about wisdom that it is exceedingly mysterious in verse 24. And uh, it's that which you just cannot seem to capture. It is so difficult to lay hold of. And Job talked about in Job chapter 28, he said it's hidden. It's hidden. It's not in the land of the living. It is with God. The wisdom is with God. And God knows its place, according to Job 28, verse 23. Solomon just said it's exceedingly mysterious. 
who can discover it? You see, it's with God. It's in God. And I think that when we get into this situation, one of the things we have to stop and think about, since Solomon and Job are talking about wisdom in the same way, is perhaps they have the same knowledge uh, with regard to that wisdom. And remember that Job speaks of a redeemer who is beyond the sun. Job said in Job 19, 25 to 27, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take a stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh, I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Job has the concept of a redeemer. And Job lived many hundreds of years before Solomon. So could it be that Solomon also understands these things? that he has received that revelation, perhaps from his father David, perhaps by reading some of the Psalms of David. Job chapter 33, verse 23, if there is an angel as mediator for him, a messenger, in other words, notice a mediator, one who can stand. In fact, Job talks about this in chapter 9, as a person who can lay his hand on God and lay his hand on Job and mediate between them. And the only person who can do that is one who partakes of the character of both. It takes a God-man to do that, right? It's one who is a messenger, who's a mediator, one out of a thousand. We're going to see that same phrase here in a minute in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It means unique. It means unique. To remind a man what is right for him, then let him be gracious to him. Notice the grace comes through the mediator. And say, deliver him. Deliver Job from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. There is a ransom price that is paid. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then he will pray to God and he will accept him that he may see his face with joy and he may restore his righteousness to man. And notice the way the translators handle this. The capital H on his, the New American Standard, uh, translators interpreted that his is not Job's righteousness being restored, but as God's righteousness being restored to Job. And if you do a detailed study of the concept of righteousness in the book of Job, which I'm in the midst of right now for the Evangelical Theological Society meetings in November, uh, it is fascinating because a lot of the book of Job deals with Job's righteousness. But there are those passages, those texts like this one, that could be interpreted, and some of them, I think, definitely are interpreted, to demonstrate the righteousness of God. And it almost sounds like Paul, you know? It sounds like New Testament theology here. And here we are in the book of Job, and we're talking about a time back in the time of Abraham, or at least prior to Jacob, when Job lived, when these concepts are being talked about by Elihu as he speaks to Job. And so it's a reminder that perhaps God has given his revelation throughout all time of what is necessary for salvation, that the gospel has always been available and declared, just not seen as clearly in Old Testament times. And, of course, with Christ coming and fulfilling all of the uh, work that needed to be done for the application of that gospel, uh, we now more clearly see it and understand it. It goes on, he will sing to men and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right and it is not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit and my life shall see the light. 
fascinating section of scripture. And I come back to this question again. In chapter 7, it keeps coming up. Does Solomon know his redeemer? Is Solomon aware of that? Does he know about a redeemer? Well, look at verse 25. Solomon, in the midst of this search, says, I directed my mind. It's the idea of setting his mind to, uh, putting his heart to in such a way that it will search. And notice he talks about three different things, to know, to investigate, and to seek. This is all emphatic. It's said over and over again here to show the intensity of the pursuit of this kind of wisdom. Uh, I think this is the outworking of what he talked about in Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men that they may what? May know, they may search, they may discover. And that's exactly the search that Solomon's engaged in. The eternity in his heart is causing him to pursue that question. Now, it's just a concept of eternity. It's not saying that God puts eternal life in every individual. It's a concept of eternity that causes a person to ask the question, all right, I know about life under the sun, but what about beyond the sun? What is in the distant future? What, is, what about eternity? What happens after death? Solomon is seeking that with greater and greater intensity. And again, is after that explanation. Notice he talks about that explanation there in verse 25. And as you go on down in verse 27, he says, adding one thing to another to find an explanation. Everywhere he's talking about this concept of an explanation. An explanation that help make sense of life under the sun in the light of eternity. His finding is shocking. Verse 24, what has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? He finds that he can't discover the answer under the sun with human wisdom. And we see that in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be when? After him. No knowledge of the future. Who then can discover it? No one. Not even someone with the wisdom of Solomon. We cannot discover it on our own. So how, how do we discover it? How do we get the answer? Butch? Revelation. revelation. The revelation of God. Right here. In the book. It's the only way. The answers aren't written in the stars. They aren't written in the rocks. They are written only in the word of God. It comes by revelation. We have no other means of knowing that. And Solomon, here's the biggest shock, when he gets to the end here saying he can't know, he can't find, he can't understand, he can't comprehend, then how does he illustrate this? He illustrates it, he associates this discovery with his relationship to a seductress. And you say, what? What in the world is this man thinking, or is he even thinking at all? What's going on here? Well, this is the big surprise. And the, the issue here in verse 26, he says, And I discovered more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are chains. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Why does he take that viewpoint? Now, there's a number of different interpretations. You've got some of them there in your notes on page 57. One uh, commentator argued that uh, the text teaches that because of sin, married life will be a war instead of a joy. 
Now, it's possible that married life can be a war instead of a joy, but I don't think that's what this text is talking about at all. And uh, a better interpretation is just say this is figurative representation of folly or foolishness because that's exactly what he does in Proverbs chapter 9 and uh, in other texts in Proverbs as well. And so in essence here, the seductress, the woman he's using here is figurative and he's talking about the foolishness, folly, a pursuit of folly and foolishness. And it's like a seductress that has captured an individual. And the sinner will be captured by her. The sinner will be caught up in their own foolishness. There's no justification here for us to look at this, this text and uh, put it together with what follows, verse 27 and 28. Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find an explanation, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. And some people look at that and say, oh boy, that's a chauvinistic comment, right? Well, there's no basis to say that there is here a universal truth regarding all women. That's not what he is talking about. When he declares, I have found one man among a thousand, he's saying, I've only found one. And who might that be? Himself, right? Because he knows he was given wisdom by God because God told him so, 1 Kings chapter 3. But he's not found a woman. Now, what women does Solomon have relations to or knowledge of? Tell me that. What are the women that fill his world? Pagan women. What else? What do you know about him? Women of royal standing. Tell me, is there a single woman among the wives and concubines of Solomon that we could say confidently was a wise woman? And why would we say we would not find a wise woman among them? They drew his heart away from God. They married him, right? That shows how unwise they were. All right? Solomon doesn't have a very wide experience with godly women. In fact, about the only godly woman he could probably associate with is one he never knew, his great-great-grandmother, Ruth. You may have heard his father talk about her. The Shulamite maiden, that's uh, a godly woman <laughs> in the Song of Solomon. There's no definite mention there or, or text that would help us know that. She might have been the best of the women, but there's no indication of godliness there or wisdom. The Queen of Sheba wasn't married to him. And besides that, what kind of woman was the Queen of Sheba? We don't really know either, do we? All right? Yeah, I mean, Solomon didn't have a whole lot to go on. So if he did not find a woman in his experience yet who was wise, it really shouldn't be too surprising because he wasn't known to associate with godly women. All right? There's nothing chauvinistic here. It's just a reality of Solomon's limited knowledge and limited experience. It's, again, another example of his limited wisdom. That's all it is. There's nothing here anti-woman. There's nothing here that's chauvinistic. It, if there's anything here, it just demonstrates the folly of Solomon, even as the wisest man on earth. All right? Let me ask you. Yes, go ahead. Uh, did the other uh, leaders of countries in Solomon's day have lots of wives? 
Yes, they did. Correct. It was right. Exactly. And, and doing the same thing as Israel later did in First Samuel chapter eight or earlier did, excuse me, in First Samuel chapter eight, when they said, we want a king just like all the other nations. Well, what were they asking for? Well, they were warned. Samuel warned them. This is what your king's going to be like. And actually Solomon epitomizes exactly the kind of king Samuel warned them about that they were going to get. They got what they wanted. That's right. But remember the limits on Solomon's wisdom. God himself in 1 Kings says, I'll give you the wisdom to discern and make judgments. But it does not give him wisdom in other realms. It does not give him spiritual wisdom. All right? Right, yeah. If one's folly involves love of money, flee. If one's folly is lust, flee. Whether the person representing that folly is male or female, the concept here he's talking about here is to escape. One who is pleasing to God will escape from her, will flee. And here in this context, for correct and taking it figuratively of folly, we ought to flee foolishness. We ought to flee folly. We ought to pursue wisdom, godly wisdom, not human wisdom. Pardon? Do the Joseph thing. Do the Joseph thing, right, exactly. Right? Solomon says he's still seeking the wisdom. It has eluded him thus far. That's the way chapter 7 closes. But notice what he does as chapter 7 closes. He takes and interprets verse 28 with verse 29, which says, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. God made man good, upright, holy, righteous. Think of Adam. But what did man do? Perverted the right way of God. They have sought out many devices. This is his conclusion. He's really coming down to say this is what mankind is. The absence of wisdom is because of who we are. The absence of godly wisdom is because we are fallen creatures. Three questions Charles Swindoll suggested as we close this chapter that we ask. Regarding balance, is wisdom guarding us from extremes? Remember, we dealt with that back in verses 15 through 17. Regarding strength, is wisdom keeping us stable? And regarding insight, is wisdom clearing our minds? Godly wisdom does all three of these. And it's godly wisdom that we need to pursue and seek out. Now let's move on to the... Uh, Next chapter, chapter 8, move over to your notes there. Remember that we're in this section of chapters 6 through 8, three chapters that deal with this concept that by application, the preacher, or Solomon, found the explanation for apparent inequalities in divine providence. The wise man is a phrase that brackets the entire chapter. Notice verse 1, who is like the wise man? And then look at, at chapter 8, verse 1, and then verse 17, and I saw every work of God. I conclude that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. It's an interesting bracketing of the chapter. Verse 1 speaks about the rarity of the truly wise person. 
just like chapter 7, verses 27 to 28. And verse 17 announces the frustration of the wise man who still cannot comprehend the questions of life that bug us. And in chapter 8, verse 1, wisdom has its benefits. Notice in the second half of verse 1, a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. And in verse 17, it still has its limits. Even when the wise man says, I know, he cannot discover, he cannot comprehend. All right? Verse 1 is a transition between the two chapters, chapters 7 and 8. Both of them talk about wisdom as one of the key words. It has two rhetorical questions in here. Who is like the wise man? Obvious answer, no one. Who knows the interpretation of a matter? Of a matter? Obvious answer, no one. But amazingly, Solomon then goes on to say here in the second half of the verse that there are some positive things about wisdom. That even though there's no one who's truly wise, yet what wisdom a man does have gives him a radiant countenance. And uh, the meaning here is, is literally of making the face shine. That's the same phrase used in the Aaronic uh, blessing in number six. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And that's the concept. To make your face shine is to then behave in grace and graciousness. Proverbs 16, 15 puts it in the light of a human king, just like what we're talking about here. In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain. So wisdom makes a person gracious. If we get godly wisdom, spiritual wisdom, it should not make us harsher it should not make us more legalistic. It should not make us more critical. It should soften us, mellow us, cause us to be more forgiving and more gracious in our dealings with others. It causes his stern face, literally his hardened face, his rough face to beam. In other words, it softens his very countenance. He's no longer a stern individual. His face shows that as well in the grace that then develops his life. Proverbs 15, 13 talks about the same type of thing. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. But when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. And the idea, a wise heart makes for a gracious face. We display our degree of wisdom by what's on our faces. Think about that. All right? A forgiving spirit is part of what he is talking about here, just what he had talked about earlier about our words in chapter 7, verses 21 to 22. A forgiving spirit. Now, the problem is that in verses 2 through 9, we run into all these instructions about how to behave in front of a king. And some of the commentators ask this question. Would King Solomon speak in such a manner? What can you think of that would say, well, of course Solomon could talk about this. What are some of the arguments you would offer in, in response to someone who says, this proves Solomon did not write Ecclesiastes? Why would he write about kings this way? Pardon? All of the vanities. The in, items what, in the series of all that you would pursue and acquire and accumulate. Okay, but what about kings? He's writing about kings. All right. Number one, he's a king himself, right? Who better to write about kings and how to behave before kings than a king? I mean, don't you want the inside source? If you want to go meet the president of the United States, wouldn't it be best to get instructions from him as to how to behave in his presence? 
Wouldn't that be the very best? Because then you don't have to guess and say, well, was this advisor correct or not? All right, what else, Anna? Same thing? How many kings did Solomon know? A lot of them. He probably met every major king of his era of time. In fact, he married many of their daughters. All right? So he called a lot of them daddy. <laughs> okay? Because they were his father-in-law. Who better to write about behavior in front of kings than one who is a king, but also one who has had daily influence and has been in the courts of kings and knows kings, is married to the daughters of kings, etc., etc. He has all the inside scoop on what it is in the court, how the court operates. So why wouldn't he fit as author of the book of Ecclesiastes? Yes. Seven hundred and three hundred concubines. The concubine was just an unofficial wife, in, in essence. Well, sort of, a little bit different. She had some other uh, benefits that were given to her. So, all right. What what does he say about the king? First of all, submit to the king. Now, is there anyone who thinks that's wise to not submit to the king's authority? Uh, a human monarch or the divine king? What are we talking about here? Is this, are these verses talking about human kings or are they talking about God being king? There are a number of commentators who argue very strongly that this king here is the eternal king, that's God and not human kings. All right? I think, go ahead, Carolyn. Isn't that part of the reason to give the instruction? Because God is likened to a king. All right. In our human experience. And so, I don't understand that. Why would we understand how to respond to God? Exactly right. Think about that. If we know how we should behave before a human king, an earthly king, then what does that teach us about how we ought to behave before our heavenly king? Well, an example of that is That's right. Very clear example. And what did, he, what did uh, Solomon himself say in Ecclesiastes chapter 5? He said, when you go into the house of God, keep your feet still and what? What else do you say and why? And he says, keep your words few because what? You on earth and what? God's in heaven. There's a difference. And he is the one who has the authority. Now, I think that here we're dealing with the idea of human kings, human monarchs. We'll see that as we go along through it here. But uh, I think we also see here a preparation that if we learn what earthly authority is and to yield to it, we also learn how to yield to heavenly authority. Now, Solomon says, verse 2, I say. Now, the word say is not really there at all in the language. It just says I, and it goes to keep the command of the, of the king. It's, it's as though he is saying, as for me, the rule is keep the king's command. In other words, Solomon is summarizing all of this idea of the king's authority. He says, look, you ask me, there's only one thing I'll tell you. Obey. Keep his command. That word for command, is this, it's really the mouth of the king. And it's the same used in 1 Samuel 12 of the mouth of the Lord being his command. And he says here in verse 2, because of the oath before God. Literally the oath of God. And so there's a question, is it the oath that God made, a promise that God made to the king? Or is it the promise we make to, the, to, be, uh, to show our allegiance to the king? What is involved in the oath here? 1 Chronicles 29, 24. All the officials, the mighty men, and also all the sons of King David 
pledged allegiance to King Solomon. There we have the context. It's the idea of an oath of uh, fealty, an oath of allegiance, an oath of obedience and submission to the king. And he says, be careful when you make your exit. Don't make your exit from the throne room hastily. In other words, don't go until you're dismissed. Don't go until the king says, you can go. You might miss out on an opportunity to present your case if you leave too early. Don't engage in a bad cause. Don't do anything that would be displeasing to the king. Don't get involved in rebellion, conspiracy. Uh, don't try to subvert his authority. Don't argue with the king. Verse 4. I found that so humorous. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? <laughs> the same phraseology is used of God in the book of Job. We can't say, what are you doing to God? In fact, Jeremiah uses the same thing about the potter and the clay. The clay doesn't say the potter, what are you doing? So with a king and with a potter and with God, there's no, you don't question their authority. Obey the royal decrees in verse 5. And if you have a grievance, if you have a complaint, if you have a disagreement, use the correct process at the proper time. Right? You have to have a sensitivity there to how to do it the right way to get the best result. Well, we're going to have to stop right here, and we'll pick up uh, in two weeks. Next week, I am going to uh, Vancouver, Washington for a Bible conference, be up there teaching and preaching. I have seven sessions on Saturday, and I have uh, two on Sunday morning, and then fly back late Sunday night. Uh, next Sunday, you will have Dave Stolarski in here, our uh, intern working with Children's Ministries. He's going to be in here and is going to be talking about his concepts and lessons from Ecclesiastes regarding worship. So please come support him. Remember, Dave's another one of those fellows that right now is going through a trial with cancer. And uh, we'll be having surgery probably in December. So please be here, support him, encourage him, love him, listen to the lessons he's giving. Here's a man that's facing one of the realities we talk about in Ecclesiastes. How long will I live? What future do I have? What's going to happen after the surgery? And realize he's speaking to you from his heart about what he's learned about worship. So let's do that, okay? That's about prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for all that you've given us this day. And we just pray that you'll continue to press into our minds and hearts the fact that we are sinners and don't have the answers ourselves. Therefore, we must come to you. And only in you is the wisdom we need to be able to deal with the problems we face in life. Lord, we continue to pray for little Susanna, that you'll help the doctors there and help her to re be restored to full health. Just pray for John and Jamie that you will just uh, comfort their hearts, give them peace that passes all understanding. Be with their parents, the grandparents as well. And just uh, pray, pray that you'll bring your blessings upon them. We pray for again for Shirley Kemper, that you will comfort her with those days that she has left in battle against her cancer and encourage her and uh, help us to encourage her. And for the Richardson family, Lord, how our hearts go out to them. And we just pray that you will build them up, give them strength, and uh, give them wisdom they need in maximizing the time that Karen has. And we just pray that you will cause each one of us here to not only take opportunities to minister to these people, to encourage them, to pray for them, to help them, but also to cause us to stop and consider the realities that we must face in our own lives 
and how we must live this life for Christ seriously, intentionally, and humbly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.